Round about the cauldron go, in the poison entrails throw, toad under that cold stone, days and nights has thirty-one. Sweltered venom, sleeping got, boil thou first in the charmed pot. Double, double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Cauldron of change, vessel of might, within your walls we gain new sight. Stirred and swirled, bubble and brew, moving all we thought we knew. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, October 30th, and it's that time of year when the veil between worlds is particularly thin. So today we'll explore the spellbinding history, tradition, and modern uses of the witch's cauldron. From blessing and using your cauldron in ritual and divination to practicing kitchen witchery with it, today we're meeting Laura Tempest Zakroff, author of The Witch's Cauldron, which relates the ins and outs of one of the most iconic tools in witchcraft. It teaches about the cauldron's role in lore and mythology, its development through the ages, and old-world witchery. How to choose, personalize, and care for your cauldron, and find unconventional ones already in your home. This entertaining book also features advice and spells from well-known writers helping you delve into the endless possibilities for using your cauldron in your practice. Laura Tempest Zakroff has been a practicing modern traditional witch for more than two decades. In January, her newest work, Sigil Witchery, A Witch's Guide to Crafting Magic Symbols, will become available. She revels in the intersection of her paths as an artist, author, designer, and dancer. She blogs for Pathios and Witches and Pagans and contributes to the Witches' Almanac. She lives in Seattle, Washington and can be found online at lauratempestzakroff.com. Welcome. Good morning. How are you doing today, Laura? Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I, I am awake, and, and it is a wonderful season. It is. It's that, are you in New Orleans because of some kind of uh, work-related thing? Yeah, yes. It's a mixture of, of work and pleasure. It's, uh, I believe, our fourth Halloween and doing New Orleans. In this trip, we've uh, performed at the Witch's Ball, and I led a ritual there. And yesterday was the Greater New Orleans Pagan Pride event. And today we'll be performing at the Alambrados OTO, doing a ritual presentation as well. And then we go home to Seattle. But it's just, I love this time of year in New Orleans. It's, uh, I have to say, it's definitely magical. <laughs> and when you say perform, is that as a dancer or as a, like a witch-type uh, ritual uh, I, I guess I would use performance in in the music and dance aspect of it. I don't see persistent that witchcraft is about performance. Uh, we have um, the mechanist and the star goddess, which is myself, uh, my partner Daniel Johnstone, and our drummer Davis Peterson from Atlanta. Um, so it's a ritual music presentation. Everything is improvised. So we've performed that, but I also did ritual yesterday and the day previous day at the witch's ball and uh, giving workshops as well. So that's all part of yeah, part of my life doing all the all the things art, music, dance, witchcraft. And then looking at your various websites, it it seems like it seems like your life is a hustle. I mean, you've got a yeah. lot of different aspects um are you able to 
I mean, it's it sounds exciting. It do you, are you able to find balance in these different elements that you that combine to make up your practice? Yes, uh, you know, all the things that I do here that I just listed. That's what I do for my vocation. Um, I don't have what a, you know, a regular job with heavy you know heavy use of air quotes on that. Yeah. Um, so you know, being an artist and designer and it's a, it's and a writer, all these things, they balance out. There's different times of year. So there's good times to tour usually from spring into fall. And so we'll be doing that with music and dance. And many of the places we go to, I'm also doing the workshops. And so it, it just kind of feeds into itself. And then as we get to winter, it's a great time to write. Like the next month I will be focusing on my next book project. And that's, that's the main thing that I will be doing for, for all of November. Uh, and then December and January is about gearing up and making more art and getting into uh, the next year. And when you say your next book project, that's that's the one that will be that that. So the one in January is already done. Is that correct? Yes, yes, uh, that is. I believe off to press, and uh, so Roland's already sent that off. Hopefully, and uh, I think actually officially November first is the the deadline like, for it to get in. So we've already in the last few weeks has been the fine tuning of you know the little checking for consistency, little errors and, and layout and moving things over an inch, you know, in the, in the, uh, the way the pages are. And uh, the next is actually the project I'm working on now uh, will be called Weave the Liminal. And that's a exploration of the modern tradition of witchcraft, which is how you, how do you apply witchcraft in your daily life? How do you form a path that is specific to who you are as a person and where you live? And that's technically my fourth book. <laughs> huh. Okay, so we definitely talk a lot about practice on the show, and it because what we've found is practice is just how an individual relates to the universe, whether you know mm-hmm. whatever it is that they do to you know it's almost just stay sane, I guess, but um and yeah. whether it's a writer or an artist or whatever they are, you know it's just their way of processing what is reality and then moving through that. I'm wondering, could you speak a little bit about your practice? Because it sounds like not only does that in- entail writing, but also, you know, ritual ceremony. Yes. Uh, so my my personal practice is, it, it all starts with art. Uh, I have been trained as an artist since a very young age. And my, um, if, if you say the like, witches, each are going to have their own little, like some people are really good with herbs and other people like making candles and oils and sorts of things like that. And you know, other folks are also great lawyers, you know, like everyone has their own special talent. And for me, the, my relationship to the world around me is first and foremost through making art and uh, having that, you know, translating the invisible into the visible. And then not just doing you know, realistic art. I mean, definitely, I can make landscapes and still lifes and such. But what I focused on more is making myths manifest into a visual format, whether that is deities and spirits or spells and uh, different kinds of experiences, such dreams and visions, and, you know, things that you just really can't describe just in words. Like you know, as a writer, you know, I can can make a very poetic experience, but that sitting down to take that image and make it so that other people can relate to it in a visual way is very powerful. So that is very much my, my existence and how I relate to the world. And that is why I say my, my particular witch, my witch ability, if you're going to put it that way, is, uh, is through making the art. 
Well, so then you have a unique perspective. What is the what is the difference between art and magic? And is there any? I don't know if there really is any. Magic is the, the art of changing consciousness with your will and your focus or looking at it as metaphysics. And what is what is a spell? It's the idea of putting um, your focus, your will, your intent, or manifesting some sort of idea that's in your head and exerting upon the world. And creating a painting or a drawing is very much taking something, again, an idea inside your head and then making it physical. So I think it is the perfect overlap in, in my perspective because I can make that spell and it's a very tangible thing for other people. I really enjoy doing something called tiny spell paintings. And these are really little pieces of, uh, of reclaimed cedar, maybe like one by three inches, depending on the, the, the size of the, the piece of wood. And people have requests, whether they're looking for uh, a healing or they're trying to um, do a protection spell for their home or, you know, something, you know, any of these different things, you know, they need more focus. They need help on a creative project. And what I do is I sit down with their, with the idea of them and what they have written me and then create that into an image. And then they take that and they look at it each day or they put it somewhere where they can think about it. And that really helps them, you know, visualize what they need to do. You know, a lot of people have that hard time. Not everyone's very right brain. Not everyone's very image oriented, and uh, and have a hard grasp and saying, okay, well, sure, I just put my will out there, but what does that mean? You know, do I just burn a candle to make that happen? But when you have a little physical reminder of an image or a painting, or it's my, my book coming out in January, you're a sigil, you know, a sign, a symbol that you've crafted, then it feels more tangible. And because it feels more tangible, you can kind of trick your brain into really start manifesting what it is that you want to work on. Interesting. Okay, so... Our contemporary moment right now is kind of a, a tenuous one. Um, mm. This summer, there was this piece that came out in the Atlantic about the squishy nature of our current moment with the political implications and everything. And so he he arrived at the idea that contemporary America has become fantasy land. And it, what it amounted to was this really left-brained attack of the of the right brain is how it felt so that our problems are that we're not logical enough and that what we need to do is kind of remove some of of uh more of the magical thinking elements with that i'm just wondering what's so fascinating is that you know the piece speaks to this this essay speaks to the idea that we Reality is a materialistic kind of empirical space, and your book mm -hmm. takes a material object, the the cauldron, and then uses that as a portal to this other space. Mm. So why, number one, were, are you familiar with this essay about how America went haywire and how uh, all the squishiness of the past has led to... Our, our moment, and then two, you know, why why the cauldron? Okay, well, the to the first part, I haven't read it, but my my take on the separation of things is not about fantasy and reality and logic and and back to fantasy again, but the fact that we've separated ourselves from 
each other and the, the planet, the society, everything that we're, we're looking at. Uh, and, you know, looking at 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian religion that says that God is outside of us yeah. and not with us and present in the world around us, that's, that's a very much grounded, um, or that idea makes, it takes the sacred out of everything that's around us. It takes the, the relationship that we have, that we are part of something rather than separate from it. Um, and that is not a left brain or a right brain thing. That is a very much a, you know, social creature, you know, teaching value, you know, in, in her connectivity to all things. So that would be my counter argument to that. It's a whole other problem, and uh, we really need to be more in touch with ourselves, and that being in touch with ourselves and the community around us, that's a physical, emotional, a spiritual, you know, it's all these things coming together, and we have to be more present in that way, but that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy life and, and look at art and be metaphorical about things as well. In the sense of a cauldron, we have this tool that we have also had around for thousands of years. You know, when we first decided, oh, we have fire, and how do we carry fire with us, and how do we keep things warm, and oh, when accidentally something fell into the fire the first time, and hey, it was good to eat. <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, the idea that you needed a vessel to contain fire, to cook in, to purify water, and, you know, as we evolved in humanity's terms from, you know, just taking a coconut or a goat's bladder or some other vessel or seashell, you know, or carving a piece of wood. When we were able to harness metal and ceramics, we were able to advance society at the same time. You know, when we can change how we eat and how we move and how we can, you know, set up either it's harvesting or gathering, that really evolves society. And so at that, the crux of, of civilization was the cauldron. So we have this ancient symbol that's been with us a very long time, but that doesn't mean that it's just mundane. Um, that you know, it's like you can look at your pasta pot as just oh, it just does a thing, but it does make meals that where you can gather around if you're having a family gathering um, that you make things and it changes the aroma of your house. And the whole process of cooking is very soothing for a lot of folks. So for some people, it's stressful, but for other people, it's a matter of changing the mindset. And that's all kind of the secrets of the, the cauldron, whether you're, you're brewing a spell or you're brewing mead or you're making pasta. And then as I was reading your book, it kind of made me realize with the cauldron, you end up not only with, with the cooking vessel, but it's also the kitchen sink and the stove itself. It's kind of the, the grounding element in the, in the home. Yeah, every everything that we have, not everything we have, but most of those things that we have in our home, it started with that very utilitarian thing. Now, instead of just having one pot to cook and clean in and to do everything, we have the kitchen sink, that we have our washing machines and we have bathtubs and we have coffee pots and, and you know, crock pots and all these different things. They all evolved mainly from the fact that we you know, as we settle down into having households that we have more space and then, you know, shooting through the industrial revolution, suddenly let's just fill that space with lots of stuff. But all of those things came from the cauldron. Everyone has the quintessential cauldron in their mind, which is, you know, I read from Macbeth at the beginning, but you have your three witches in front of this giant pot. Is, is, that, mm -hmm. is that a real thing or is that more of a, an artistic license? It's a mixture of both. Uh, if you look at the at the time of Shakespeare uh, and looking at 
development of various witch hunts across Europe and into you know, other regions, um, many of the tools that were associated with witchcraft were just household items. You know, and, and going down the whole path of like it was a war on women, it was a war on a lot of different other people in society, whether that was the widows, whether that was the people who were disabled, you know, or not considered useful or, you know, whoever you wanted to spite, uh, it came out of, oh, well, there's broomsticks. And what is, you know, do we really go riding off to the Sabbath on a broom? That's um, another show. <laughs> but the, the, those kind of tools that were just found in the kitchen and the hearth, uh, that was a way of being like that saying that, oh, witchcraft could be among us and, you know, anyone could be doing it. And it's just these things here. And when modern society, when we look at the culture, we kind of think of it as antiquated. You know, this is classical thing. And I read somewhere, I think this is also in the book, you know, someone said, oh, you know, in those times, you if you had a cauldron, you know, it would mean you're automatically you're a witch. Like, no, no, it didn't. Everyone had a cauldron. It was the microwave of the day, right? It's how you made your meals. So it'd be more weird if you're cooking without a cauldron that you'd probably get accused of witchcraft. Like, where'd you get that meal from? <laughs> so it has that. You know, we, we have because of the witch hunts and the craze and all the art, because artists love this, you know, that's the thing. We can hang on to a myth and we're like, oh, let's take it and run with it. You know, and so while there were things that the, the witch hunters were coming up with, the artists were doing a fantastic job of just taking it to the next level. Like, oh, this is a great way for us to portray women naked and, you know, and all the fears. And it was great fuel for the early woodcut industry as well. So you know, that that is, has created our classic idea of Macbeth witches around the cauldron. But, you know, today when you go to a, a modern pagan or witchcraft ritual, you might have a cauldron there and have folks staring around it. And, you know, so we, we've taken something that was probably you know, from utilitarian to being twisted to a fantasy, and now we've made it reality again. And then how big are the, the cauldrons at a at a witch's ceremony these days are they are they gigantic because we i think you know back in the history these things would have been heavy and expensive but now because of the way you know we've progressed you could actually do a gigantic cauldron at a relatively reasonable cost i imagine yeah, they're they're still pretty pricey, especially for cast iron. Um, I would say the size depends on people's space and who feels like moving it around. Uh, the bronze cauldrons, which are a lot of the ones that we're finding in in the UK, particularly, those were much lighter weight. Bronze is obviously a lighter metal than cast iron, which tends to have that thickness. Uh, so, but I don't see that many large bronze uh, cauldrons in spaces. Some some people um, who are blacksmiths have created new kinds like that. So those are easy to move around. But most often, if you're going to some sort of witchcraft, you know, ritual or whether it's Wicca or, you know, whatever path it is, you're going to see that more standard classic cauldron that's available either at the camping store, which is a great place to get a cauldron. It's already seasoned and ready to go for like, you know, 20 to $30. Uh, you know, and that's maybe, uh, you know, holds about a gallon, I'd say. But most metaphysical shops, so cult shops, witch shops, tend to carry the little tiny ones because, well, they're still heavy, uh, but most people don't know what to do with a bigger cauldron. And so a small cauldron is very easy to do a little meditation in or to light a candle or to mix a little brew or set something on fire in a very small contained kind of way. And so those are more like a, you know, a cup or a mug. They're not that big. So 
from your, your tiny little cauldrons to maybe about your pasta pot size. That is the most common. Uh, if anybody has anything bigger, it's usually like, oh, everyone has cauldron heavy. Earlier, we're talking about like the separateness of divinity from like we've removed. There's the idea of sacred and secular and sacred is out there and, it, you know, reality is here. Um, mm -hmm. With the idea of medicine also, I wonder when medicine. So I'm thinking about a cauldron being really a practical tool for brewing various herbs to heal someone in the moment of need. Mm -hmm. And how how that could, you know, at what point does medicine become, you know, a specialized thing and doesn't happen in the hearth and home, but happens, you know, someplace else with uh, chemistry and scientists and, you know, whatever. But you, you know what I'm saying? So, like, it seems like there's such a fine line between what witchcraft is and or maybe it's not that final line you know it's like the, it's just mm -hmm. this bleed over from practicality to something that we've construed as esoteric or uh you know uh, out uh, taboo outside the bounds of what's acceptable in society right and yeah, i'm not I'm not an expert on on the pharmaceutical industry but i knew do you know like in the last 150 years you know, we switched from being something that grandma would mix up in the kitchen, you know, whether that was herbs or, you know, whatever old concoction. Uh, and you think about the, um, the snake oil salesman of the 1800s, you know, folks going around in carts and that lasted, you know, into the previous century of, you know, mixing these things up. And then as it got separated out into, oh, we can, we can, we can make a business out of this and into, you know, mixing compounds and things in pill form and it shows up, you know, look at in, in the last, you know, since the 1940s onward of what's happened with industrialized society, that that separation happened. So it's actually fairly recent if we look at the whole uh, longevity of, of human civilization. And I think it's also why we're seeing a return to herbalism, uh, you know, the herbal supplements. And people are like, oh, that's just, you know, Oh, that, that's just a hippie thing. It's like, no, actually, if you look into Tylenol, it's willow bark root, right? We've, we, our grandmothers and great-grandmothers, everybody, they all the way down the line knew that this is something that you, you mix and you make a tea for or you take in some sort of tincture to relieve headaches, to relieve pain. And that valerian, you know, can help you get to sleep, even though it smells like sticky, you know, socks, in there, you know, all these different herbs. This is where these herbs, you know, this is where the pills come from. Those pills, you know, format for anything from, you know, antacids to cancer drugs. Those are all coming from some sort of natural substance to begin with. And we've either extracted it or we've powdered it down and we've labeled it so that it looks nice and clean and pristine. And then we involve the FDA. So, <laughs> at least in this country. Uh, and you know, that, that's, that's kind of a, an amazing twist of things. And that does go back to that, that separation of, of, you know, us from the natural world. Uh, I do love that there, there are more schools of herbalism happening and more people being aware of, Hey, you know, not every, everything that comes in, you know, from our, an herbal store is, you know, just some sort of wishful thinking. It's if, if it's an active herb and it's harvested well, then it actually have a lot of a positive effect on our bodies and can help and heal us if we allow us to have that, ourselves to have that relationship um, though you know, that's not medicinal 
uh, advice for the audience out there that, you know, just take it urban, everything will be better. <laughs> you also need to have a healthy lifestyle and all the other things involved with that. But um, there, there is that, you know, it, that cauldron talks about that, the time that we mix the herbs and we have our mortal and pestles and we grew these things in our gardens. And much of what we look at as common weeds today in our yards are actually very helpful, beneficial things from um, plantains to uh, dandelions, even, you know, all these different things have, have properties that we can connect with and use. Yeah, I think there's there's uh, an individual, her name is Hildegard von Bingen, who was a like a 12th century nun that mm -hmm. later on would be considered a witch, just straight up, because she was uh, a mystic, you know, a visionary, a musician, and then an herbalist. And it's like, well, <laughs> it, you know, just if... You know, a couple hundred years later, I think she would be branded a witch and burned at the stake. So it's really interesting. Exactly. Yeah. How we, but so then does your practice, do you, are you, uh, is one of your passions herbs and plants or is that, you know, something that doesn't call to you? I, I love all of the herbalism and all that. I'm really home enough to really tend to a garden and to take care of it properly. And uh, so often I'll, I will work with other folks who, who raise plants and do to dry them. So I'm very much interested in all aspects of that. But alas, I am not a green witch in that respect. I maybe when I'm older and we're not traveling around so much, I can, I can have my, you know, try my hand at having a really nice garden besides, uh, you know, a few plants here and there that manage to make it up and the, the foxglove that grows naturally and wild in the yard. What? <laughs> When you say that, that's actually really uh, interesting to me because the the things that people need are those things in their local environment, and I, you know, it seems like the the latest craze that I maybe it's debunked, but it seems like it works is the idea that uh, if you have allergies, you use a local bee pollen. Mm -hmm. um, that, that is actually that does um, work really well for for asthma. Um, if you, it has to be local though, and it has to be where you're living. Right. So if it's harvested locally, you build up the allergens. Uh, we actually have a friend whose daughter was allergic to poison oak in such a way like she couldn't even be near it. And they also raise goats. And so what she, her, the mother did was release the goats into the, poi the poison oak patch and then harvested the milk. And in the, that was the antibodies for it. And her daughter's no longer allergic to poison oak. Wow. But these things really spell out this local connection to the ground that you live on. You know, mm -hmm. so you're talking about a green witch has a garden. Um, the thing that I think about is in our in our technological moment, you know, wh what is the cauldron? What grounds us? Is there anything we're, we're in this Philip K. Dick universe and our witchery tools are our computers and our phones and it just seems like such a, a strange portal to anything beyond kind of a left-brained dead universe so looking at it as how does it connect us to the spiritual or what yeah what how now? can moderns take advantage of the spiritual and you know have that grounded connection oh once we get outside that classic idea of a cauldron or those, you know, from those little mini cauldrons to the big ones out in the yard, 
um, looking at to the, the grandchildren and cousins of the cauldron in our daily lives. So I guarantee that most folks wake up in the morning and brew some sort of hot beverage to get moving, whether that is tea or coffee. Uh, and that might happen at the office if that's where you go. It you know, might be to Starbucks, but most folks just do something at their house in the morning. And so if you, you make a cup of tea, you're boiling up that water, which is related to the cauldron, and then you pour it into a mug. And so you can take that moment to focus and say, what do, what do I need to bring into my life today? And I'm, I'm a tea drinker. Uh, I, coffee doesn't work very well for me. And so I choose a blend that works with the kind of day that I'm going to have and or it progresses throughout the day. I might have one thing to start off the morning and then I have my herbal gray in the afternoon to focus in and then an herbal tea at night. And that just that little bit of added focus and tension as you're pouring the tea and thinking, what do I need to manifest? What do I need to focus on? But as I sip this tea, what can I be mindful of? You know, that you don't need to break out a wand and, and do lunar, you know, calculations and everything else to, to have magic happen right there in that moment. And so that's a, a real way to ground us. And then you're taking that, that hot beverage into your body, you know, and you can feel it as it connects to your tongue and down your throat and to your belly. And that, again, reminds us of the physical and how we are connected to our own bodies. Uh, to the, you know, if you get up in the morning and you take a bath, you know, again, that's related to the cauldron. That's actually um, our favorite thing in our household is is the bathtub. That is our favorite cauldron. And you can add things to your bath to have another experience and use it for particularly for magical activities, like such a cleansing ritual, purification, but just being in there and thinking about the water and being near your body and considering your day or your ending of your day if it's at night really have a important change uh, and to ground you so that you are relating to all things rather than, you know, just going off and on the internet or on your phone, you know, it gives you some time to stop and, and be present in your body. What about the symbolism of the cauldron? Well, it's, it's symbol. It, symbolism has to do with what it's been used for. And there are many myths that I cover in the book from all over, all over the world. Um, mainly when you think about it, it's a container, it's a transformer, it's a purifier, uh, it's a way to, um, it's, it's a gateway from one world to another. If you look at it in certain traditions, it's a drum in the sense that it can be a musical instrument in some societies, depending on how they're made, but it's also the a hearth place. It's a place where people gather and feast together. And so it symbolizes that community. It symbolizes change. Uh, it symbolizes gathering and containing things and making them into something else, whether that is a metaphysical thing or just, you know, making a stew. And in, in neo-pagan culture in the last several decades, it's been about, oh, this is a symbol of the goddess. Like, well, it is used by, if you look into the myths, there is an equal amount of gods and goddesses. Uh, it is not a gendered tool, right? It, it, it's a, it's a little bit different than that. It is something that anybody can use, and it doesn't represent one gender or another because we can all cook, we can all clean, we can all use it for different kinds of transformation. And so, there's so many different layers of symbolism that can be applied to it. But the ones that you know, people are like, oh, it's the womb of the goddess. Nope. I think if anybody's you know done their science. <laughs> A womb is not a cauldron. A cauldron is not a womb. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
<laughs> so I, again, I did divorce that that kind of that kind of fantasy to me. I and mean, if people connect with it, that's wonderful for them. But I think we it's so much more than that. And to just say, oh, it just fits in this box. Uh, you know, you think that you can you know gather a family around it or gra- gather a group of practitioners to put something together, uh, whether it's purifying water or making a brew or doing a potion or a kind of cleansing spell where you set things on fire and it goes inside the cauldron and it, you know, is rescinded to down to ashes and then the ashes are scattered. You know, all those different things, it's, it's that making and changing. And if you look at witchcraft, the essence of witchcraft is change. Whether that's magic and the changing consciousness at will or bending reality or shifting, you know, that's what witches are best at is shifting and changing things around them and the the culture makes a fantastic symbol for that manifestation of change well and then now that you say it like that it just in the catholic mass the chalice is kind of this vessel uh that that's a vessel of transformation also where it's the the community celebration around it to transform Mm -hmm. the the wine into the uh, now I've forgotten the. We went into the the transub the right of transubstantiation. There we go. <laughs> yes, that was a Catholic school. That's a, one of those words that sticks with you once you learn how to spell it. You can, you've got it for life. <laughs> but it's just, it's just so fascinating how similar the the ritual tools are. Yet you know your the the same people who are you know it's like you can see the value of the ritual. And yet those people are the ones that are most closed-minded regarding any other rituals. Mm. You, you, you know? Uh, yeah. Well, I think that's also that separation again, because, you know, those folks often, you know, oh, I obligated to go to, you know, church on Saturday or Sunday, whenever it is. So that's the thing. That's my duty to go do. And then somebody else is the person doing the magic, right? The leading the ritual. So you're just there to attend and to, you know, put your $5 in a little paper envelope when the, they come by for the, the collection, you know, and that's the obligation. And when you see it as just a separate thing from your life that you're supposed to do, it's very hard to get it to a deeper level. Yeah. So you don't recognize that ritual is something that you can do yourself and Obviously, the right of transubstantiation within the Catholic Church should be done by Catholic priests because that's their rites and rituals. Um, but you can still, within that tradition, light candles to saints and do the rosary, and you know that's all within that. But so many people don't. They just feel like, I'm, this is what I'm supposed to do because it's what my parents made me do, and that's what their parents made me do, you know, all the way down the line. And uh, so they just don't see it like that you know if you start thinking about it as like well there's a dead guy on a stick what does that mean if you didn't know what christianity was and you came across that it's very kind of strange and twisted if you think like why why is that up there (laughs) you know but we're so used to it in the culture that this is just an accepted thing and oh don't think about it too deeply it's just that it's an idea of sacrifice so it's all perspective and being made more aware of being present again it comes back down to that well so one of the the commonalities of religions is that you have a messianic figure that's had a revelation and then they Mm -hmm. relate that to their community i wonder in a witch 
tradition? Is it more of a regular relationship to the divine and therefore they don't have these messianic figures or so can you uh, can you imagine like a witch religion with uh, you know a strong figurehead that's a really good question uh i can think of right off the top of my head is a body of folklore that has been known as aradia or the gospel of the witches which came out of italy uh, supposedly its roots are from the 12th to 15th century but it was a 19th to early 20th century uh, translation um, and collection of that information that says that the goddess diana sent her daughter aradia down to earth to teach the people witchcraft uh, and so some folks in the, the italian traditions and other things will kind of relate to that um, there's a modern movement called we are aradia which is saying that we are the people that can make that change happen, that we don't need a Messiah or a Savior to do that. So that would be the kind of the sort of, it's there, but it's not waiting on somebody else to do the work. Um, you know, in the other traditions, because the, the story of Jesus is very similar to other stories from all throughout the Mediterranean, um, you know, going back to Samaria and Babylon and Egypt, of you know that resurrection story coming again and again, and you'll find that in um, you know in various myths, all in Celtic lands, you know, it's like the death of the god and the birth of the god again, or god or goddess. But that they're not scripture, you know, they're either seen as myths that inspires and influences, and it's a way to explain the world. And so it's very much the personal responsibility that you need to take care of yourself. You need to take care of the people around you. And nobody else is going to do the work for you. So that, that's where sort of you're going to have, well, you do have some of those stories, but they're not the cornerstone of practice or belief that somebody else, it's, you know, energy is going to make it happen. Even working with, you know, God, spirits, deities, the ancestors, it's working in a partnership rather than a subordinate type of situation or, you know, waiting for something to be fulfilled a thousand, two thousand years down the line. In your book, you you definitely did a lot of historical research on various myths. What were some of your favorite or your favorite myth of the cauldron? Oh, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> my my personal favorite, that's a quick one, is Baba Yaga. Um, she is from Slavic and Russian folklore, and she is the personification of nature itself. It's on some days in her myth that she gives blessings to somebody and, you know, does, does, them a, does them a favor. And on the next day, she might kill you and put your head on the fence. Uh, and we think about nature. Nature is very much like that. You know, we can, we can harvest things and then a hurricane happens and wipes out a city. And uh, so that, that's what she represents. And she travels around in a mortar and pestle or a cauldron, depending on the myth. That's how she gets around. She gets in her cauldron and she she jets off. It's a flying cauldron, uh, and so she's she's a um, a really wonderful kind of quintessential crone figure. Um, that's a great way to explore the cauldron in that myth. Okay, and so now that we're winding down too, what can you tell us, us lay folks, about Halloween? And is it an important uh, seasonal celebration for witches also? Yes. Uh, there's probably a bit of controversy who celebrates Halloween and who celebrates Samhain, which is the Celtic name for um, this type of season. Um, mainly we're looking at the, the idea of the lifting of the veils. Um, that means that for many of us, we're thinking more about death and dying 
uh, as well as the, those who have passed on. And for other people, for me personally, I see Halloween as a reminder that we should live, that we should, you know, celebrate, we should be playful, uh, and we can we can honor those who have come before us, but we also need to honor them not only by lighting candles for them and doing rituals for them, but to live our lives more fully so that we can carry on what they've created. So that's my, my quickie for Halloween and Samhain. And then what do you make of of uh, contemporary society's idea of costumes and, and all these different traditions that have just kind of accreted onto this? I think they're wonderful. Um, and you, most people don't dress up, right? You, they, you know, they go to, they go to work, they have this thing, you know, they, you know, you might put on a uniform for whether that is work or a sports team or something like that. But the idea of costuming is a type of glamour. It's a ty- kind of transformation, even something silly, you know, like into a cartoon or something like that, but it involves creativity. And when you, you alter your physical appearance, it can also have a metaphysical effect to that. And that you might say, oh, well, just dressing up doesn't do anything. It's like, no, people become a little more like here in New Orleans last night, you know, walking past Bourbon Street, you know, people feel a little less um, inhibited by what's going on. They, you know, suddenly become, you know, alcohol helps. But the idea that they're being playful and they're dressed up in some sort of crazy costume uh, makes them feel again more alive. Um, so I don't, I don't really have any issues with any of that. I, I love to see people dressing up. I don't dress up myself because I, as a performer, I have to you know, deal with costumes all year round. It's, but I really love seeing other people connect to themselves and, and to be playful and creative. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet. You've been listening to Laura Tempest-Zakroff on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. Check out her work at her website, lauratempestzakroff.com. For more information about the Sync Book, our guest, check out past shows or just subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others as currently all of the Sync Book Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And know thyself, maintain balance, and accept responsibility. had me fooled Told me that I was nothing without you Oh And after everything you've done I can thank you for how strong I have become Cause you brought the flames and you put me through hell I had to learn how to fight for myself And we both know all the truth I could tell I'll just say this is I wish you farewell I hope you're somewhere praying Praying I hope your soul is changing Changing I hope you find your peace
I'm proud of who I am No more monsters, I can breathe again And you said that I was done Well, you were wrong and now The best is yet to come Cause I can 